There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired 27-year veteran, sergeant of the NYPD. And with me today, straight out of Brooklyn, and in the afternoon, this is unusual that he's here in the afternoon because he's a nocturnal animal, <laughs> we have retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I really want to sink into this one today because I think we found something that's really not being reported in this case. You know, this case has had uh, so many twists and turns, and I don't know if you saw, but there, there's another high-level escaped prisoner across the nation. I actually, I'm going to put it on the screen for a second, but I mean, just when people try to think of uh, criminals and uh, people that escape from corrections as human beings. This guy's a savage. And I think that people have to know that these savages exist. I'm going to play a little bit of this. Bitch. He walked away from a corrections facility in late April. And since his escape, he is already accused of committing even more crimes. In just a moment, I'm going to be speaking with a member of the U.S. Marshal's office who is on this case as we speak. But first, correspondent Tom Nagavin joining us live tonight with what we know about this fugitive. Tom. Yeah, Marnie, it was just five days before Casey and Vicki White got away that Kristovich escaped from that prison, a federal prison in Oregon. Now, nothing brazen uh, about the way he did it, but it's what happened after that that has police agencies on edge, on alert across the country and eager to recapture a felon who quite literally just walked away. 18 days on the run. 38-year-old Andrew Kane Kristovich left the Sheridan, Oregon federal minimum security camp more than two weeks ago. According to his ex-girlfriend, he messaged her using a smuggled cell phone, saying he was being released early and wanted to be picked up. When she refused, Kristovich threatened her and her children. That's when she says she agreed to come get him near the prison and bring him back to her apartment two hours away in Clark County, Washington. Once there, she says, he terrorized her for hours, raping and choking her. He stole her debit card, cell phone, and car and left. Ditching the car along the way, the ex-girlfriend and her children are now in hiding because of what she's told police if captured. Kristovich now faces a long list of new charges likely to be tacked on to his original 2018 sentence of five years. Residents near the prison say they weren't told anyone broke out, this man not showing his face, because he's scared. If you hold prison or people there, you're supposed to make sure they're secure. They're not getting out. And we should have known what happened, though. If somebody broke out of prison and did all this stuff, raped somebody. If authorities are right, that man is safe and Kristovich is far away in Snohomish County, Washington, more than an hour northwest of Seattle, where he has ties. Authorities think someone there is helping him hotel surf, change locations often. He's considered armed and dangerous, believed to have new weapons, and has made statements he will not be returning to custody. That's why the U.S. Marshal Service has released these photos, hoping someone tips them off. 
before he can hurt anyone else. Aside from his description seen on the screen, his former girlfriend says he's heavier than these pictures. She says he looked puffy, his face very red. That was back in 2018, Marty, that Kristovich was arrested and charged with drug manufacturing and manufacturing ghost AK-47s. Most people know what those are. That's a Kalashnikov, a Russian-made assault rifle. And you're probably wondering right about now, Marty, given those charges, how he wound up in a federal minimum security camp. Well, we're told the reason was he was a first-time offender. Boy, little consolation to the public tonight. Tom Negevin live in New York. So, Phil, just to uh, give our audience the feel of what these criminals are like, I mean, the poor decision that his girlfriend made. Oh, my God. You know, oh, they're releasing me from prison. Oh, please come pick me up. And she said no. And then he threatens her and she goes, picks, picks him up and he rapes her and terrorizes her for hours. I mean, this is what we're dealing with. And these types of people, and it's just incredible. Uh, thank God we have a federal marshal program. Absolutely, Billy. Uh, just right here in New York yesterday, there was a uh, a sexual uh, offender uh, released after 16 years. He wasn't out but a few days, and he raped a woman in an elevator at uh, knife and gunpoint. So again, uh, there's some people that are just not uh, be able to be rehabilitated, so to speak. This guy, uh, Andrew Kane Kristovich, looks like one of those people. He folds right into the same category as Casey White, I believe. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's not going to be much uh, rehabilitation for a person like that. The only place for somebody like that is inside of a, a prison behind bars. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. And until our politicians and uh, people involved in the criminal justice system, judges, uh, district attorneys, till they get the message, we're going to keep having these horrible incidents. And it's uh, it's just quite ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. How does that woman feel that was raped yesterday in that elevator that the, the guy's a registered sex offender, did 16 years in jail, they give him release, and uh, within days he's, uh, he's raping a woman. It, it's just unbelievable. And, you know, thank God they're not smart. He used the same M.O. Uh, probably in the 16 years he was away, he didn't realize that there's cameras everywhere now. He he's looked right into the camera. He did have a mask on, but he's in the elevator. He raped her in the elevator, but he looks right into the camera, and the mask is like here. He's got glasses on, and you get get a good, pretty good look of his face. And he was actually already arrested for it. They got him, but what good is that? He already did the damage. You know, he's going to go back to jail. But what good is it? Well, an innocent woman riding an elevator is now traumatized for the rest of her life. I mean, you know, where are we as a society if we can't protect a woman riding an elevator? It's really a sad it's, state of affairs. You know, it, it's it's horrendous. And um, that's why I'm baffled sometimes with this case where you you see, you read, in our, even in our chat, some people that are sympathetic to this Casey White savage. Uh, here's this guy serving 75 years, and he escapes prison and gets into this incident, of course, where Vicky White takes her own life, but a uh, an escape... They have all these weapons in the car, and uh, we have people in our chat, and, and uh, again, not just our chat, others on uh, YouTube, that are sympathetic. This is what was in their car. Four handguns, an AK-47, excuse, excuse me, an AR-15, uh, a taser. Uh, do you think they carried them because they didn't intend on using them? And then we have people in our chat that are sympathetic to this guy. It's just it's baffling to me.
If you look at the amount of firepower that was just laid out in that photo, you could have a very long firefight with law enforcement and innocents as well as law enforcement officers could be killed as well. And, you know, this case is really, really interesting. Billy, as I, I told you the other day, I thought I spotted what looked like a bullet hole in the back of his head uh, when he's put over the car. And if you play this video, I, I noticed it last night. Uh, we finally got video with sound. And if you play the video, you're going to hear an exchange between Casey White and the officers that have him over the hood of the car where he says, I think he asked them, am I shot in the back of the head? And they look at the back of his head and they call for the medic. I believe that when she fired the shot, it went through her temple to temple and struck him in the back of the head. That may have prevented him from engaging law enforcement with that heavy firepower because, I mean, he took a shot to the back of the head, it looks like. I mean, it's not 100% confirmed, but you're going to hear the officers and you're going to hear the exchange between Casey White and the officers. And I think that may have precluded him from engaging the officers with that heavy firepower. I think no doubt in the, in the world that that pit maneuver utilized by the federal marshals with that Ram pickup truck that flipped the car on its side, I think that saved a lot of lives. And I, I think of the way things are in New York City and had New York City cops utilized the pit maneuver. We would have had the press turn on us. We would have had the politicians turn on us. We would have had the public turn on us. But down south or in Indiana, that's modus operandi. That's how they operate. And, you know, maybe the federal marshals would have uh, done the same pit maneuver in New York City. But if the New York City police would have uh, used a maneuver like that, they would have been criticized from every venue possible. Well, the fact that the car flipped over, I think that really stunned them. Uh, it disorientated them. Uh, we don't know if the shot was fired by Vicky before or after the car flipped. It sounds like it was after, but we really don't know for certain. But at the end of the day, uh, had the car just spun out, he may have turned and tried to uh, battle it out with the officers. And God forbid, uh, those marshals could have been uh, injured or killed. And I'm just glad it went the way it went. But I guess, Billy, when you play the video, hopefully we'll be able to pick up on the All sound. Right, let's, let's play a little bit of this. Let me move it up a little. Now, right when they put him over the hood of the car, Billy, you'll hear that there's a, a quick exchange between him and the two officers. And it's the sergeant that says, yes, I think you were, or it says something to that effect. The sergeant is going to be on the right of the screen. Now, obviously, this is when he's been extracted from the vehicle, and they're handcuffing him and patting him down to see if he has any weapons on him. It's a mad, it's like he's like the Jolly Green Giant. Once they pull this guy to his feet, it's just unbelievable yeah, how big he's he is. towering over all of them. There we go. He's got to his feet. Look at the size of this guy. Yeah. Now try to listen carefully for the conversation between him and the officers. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to hear it. Yeah, it's not coming through. He's talking about his wife. He's referring. Yeah, he, to. he was telling them to check on his wife, but now I'll, sh I'll point it out to you where he says, "I think I'm shot in the back." Yeah, he said it, and that's where the officer. See, if, if just back it up, but just a touch. See the sergeant on the right. He says it to him, 
just before that, he says, I think I'm shot. He asked them, am I shot in the back of the head? And now you see the sergeant is calling the medics. And right before he sits down, you'll see the back of his head. Yeah, I could see some, I could see some blood on the back of his head. Now there's, it also looks like an in and out wound. I looked at it on my computer screen, my home computer, which I have a big monitor. And I really zoomed in on it. I actually looked at it with a magnifying glass. It looks like there's actually an in and out, uh, almost like a graze wound. Right. And it looks like he lost his front tooth, too. So, Yeah, he may have lost the tooth when the car rolled. Yeah, you can see some blood on the back of his head. Yeah, yeah, right there, if, if, if people at home look at it on their screen, on a, on a computer screen, it's going to be very difficult to see on a phone or a laptop. But on a bigger screen, you'll be able to see that there's a mark. It looks like he, uh, when she fired this shot, it went through his head and it nicked him in the back of his head. Now, I had a case years ago where just exactly that happened to a victim. Uh, it was a robbery, attempted robbery. Uh, when the guy snuck up behind him, he turned at the last second, and the guy fired a shot uh, actually to kill him and, and to steal his briefcase and his Rolex watch. But when he turned, the bullet just entered the back of the skin of the neck and went out the other side, didn't hit any vinyl organs. It, it was actually caught on video. Uh, the guy was a big guy, the, the, the complainant, the victim. He did drop to the ground. He was unconscious for a second or two. Uh, and then he regained consciousness and the perpetrator was gone, but it was very, very similar to this. That's what made me key in on it. When I saw that mark initially the other day, I think I even said it looks like a bullet hole in the back of his neck. But if you look at it carefully, it appears that she must've put the gun to the right side of her head, uh, shot herself in the temple. It came out the other side and it clipped him in the back of the neck. That may have been what stunned him between the, the pit maneuver and, uh, the, um, the getting shot in the back of the neck, neck that prevented him from engaging the officers with that heavy firepower. I think you're going to hear on this uh, version of the 911 call. We'll hear a little bit more. 911. There's also this new dash cam video of police pulling out Vicky, who still had the gun in her hand after the shooting. I'm going to go for the gun first. Okay, I'm going to go for the gun. Right. I'm going to grab it. Let me a little bit. All right, pull me out. All right, I got it. I got it. All right. Seems safe. Hear me pull it out? Yeah. Somebody pull me. Ready? Go, go, go. She died. Folks, as you could see, that was dramatic video. It was not, uh, first of all, it was the officer uh, seeing that Vicki White was still breathing inside the car with the gun in her right hand that she had just shot herself in the head with. Uh, now, he his first um, course of duty was to remove the firearm from her hand, which he did. And second course, of course, was to pull her out of the car.
uh, in homicide investigation, any kind of criminal investigation, the number one thing is the preservation of life. You worry about the crime scene later on. Number one you care about is the preservation of life. And that those lives include the officers. She's still a threat to them. She's breathing. She's got a gun in her hand. Uh, they don't know at, at that point what her physical condition is. So very dramatic how they pulled her out there. You know, there was some criticisms, of course, as there always is by all kinds of Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Friday morning quarterbacks out there about, oh, they treated her rather roughly pulling her out of that car. Well, she had a firearm in her hand initially, and then they needed to get her out of the car so they could begin life-saving treatment, which, of course, was all in vain. Listen, so many times uh, you'll see on the news where an officer engages a suspect, suspect is firing shots at the officer, the officer returns fire, the suspect goes down. And what did they immediately do once they rendered the, the scene safe? They removed the firearm from the suspect's lungeable area. They administer first aid. They try to save the life of the person that just tried to kill them. That's what law enforcement officers do. Now, I don't think there's any room for criticism on what they did in that video. They removed the gun. They, 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 they were dealing with someone that was obviously desperate. They don't know the extent of her injury at that point. However, she has a, a loaded firearm in her hand. She fired a shot. She could be uh, gravely injured or she could be just a graves wound. They don't know at that point. So they followed the protocols that I think that any officer in that situation would have did. Uh, they pulled her out of the car and they began to administer first aid. I mean, what more, what, what criticism could there possibly be or what more could they have done? Well, to- let's read, let's read someone in the chat. Okie dokie uh, seven. Was well, that how people are normally pulled from a wreck without a neck brace? Yes, when someone has a firearm in their hand and they just shot themselves in the head, they don't have time to the extra 15 or 20 minutes it might take to position her. And it's, especially when the car was flipped over, they needed a Halligan tool to, to break open the door. They had to do it expeditiously. So, yes, normally if, if this was not a criminal situation, they probably would have used a neck brace and a backboard, but they didn't couldn't take that into consideration because of the emergency situation, which uh, dictated their actions. Plus Billy, she's bleeding from temples, uh, you know, probably gushing blood. And I think that it was more important to extricate her from the vehicle and then assess what the injuries were in regard to neck brace or oxygen or anything like that. So again, uh, we weren't dealing with just a, uh, what we call in the NYPD, a 1053, a car accident. This was a escaped prisoner that was uh, wanted for numerous other crimes, uh, a correction officer gone rogue uh, who crossed the line, uh, heavily armed. So in those quick seconds that, uh, you know, that elapsed between the time that the car was impacted and now they're trying to uh, extricate her from the vehicle, uh, I don't think that, you know, put a neck brace on her or handling her gingerly was really of paramount importance. It was more about safety. It was more about getting her out of the vehicle. And don't forget too, even though that car was flipped over on its side, it could still turn over and crush the uh, people that were trying to rescue her too. So there was a lot of, a lot of different things taking place, get her out of the vehicle, get her away from the vehicle. The vehicle could catch fire. The vehicle continued, could continue tipping over and crush someone. So they get her away from it and then they do first aid that's the protocol that I think was called for here. I think it was followed 100%. I cannot find one thing to critique about that situation. Phil, I agree. Uh, Jemisee, 
If you hear the 911 call, you won't hear a shot go off until they are pitted. I believe so maybe that's she true. was holding the gun in her hand in case they use it to get away, which failed through the pit. And maybe that gun went off by accident and put the bullet through her head. That's, you know, Jemisee, that's been the argument of many people that did she in fact intend to shoot herself. But my, uh, in my view, you don't put a gun to your head unless you mean to, to do harm to yourself. So I, no one just waves it around like this. Oh, we got pitted. And then they accidentally pulled the trigger. My feeling is she had the gun against her head. The science of the autopsy would show exactly that. And it was determined that she committed suicide. So I know a lot of you guys in the chat keep arguing this and keep trying to make an issue of this. But a pathologist ruled this a suicide. So I think we have to go with the with the pathologist on his or her expertise. And it was ruled, of course, it was ruled a, a suicide. John Donahue, they should be commended for not allowing any civilian or law enforcement personnel to get hurt. John Donahue, 100%. 100%. You're correct. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Uh, if you like this show, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button. It's, it's free to subscribe. Give us a thumbs up. Ring that bell. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. You can also contribute, uh, you know, live on a uh, Super Chat. You can uh, contribute to us on with a Super Chat. And you can also do that on rewatches. It doesn't have to be live to do that. And we also have a YouTube a membership. You see a lot of the folks in the chat with the, um, with the green font. They're part of our YouTube uh, channel members. And we have five different levels to that. Thomas autonomous anonymous <laughs> that's a that's a mouthful casey had no civil rights as an escaped fugitive vicky was facilitating him and not subject to the same protocols thank you thomas autonomous anonymous uh i think you got to change your name that's too difficult for me to say but thank that's you that's a real your, tongue twister billy, thank, but, thank you for uh, your comments let, let, uh, let me expand on it a little bit billy let me just make this point real quick um you know, whether or not she intended to shoot herself or it was accidental, it really doesn't matter because she was carrying a loaded firearm. She was a fleeing felon and whatever happened, happened inside that car. However, I am certain and I feel very comfortable saying this, that it was a suicide because of what Billy stated, all the facts that, uh, you know, the pathologist examined, the medical examiner, the, the autopsy. It'll show all different specific things that will lead to the fact that she had the gun placed against the head. Now, here's one other thing I want to make a point about. Her state of mind, she had nothing to lose. She sold all her worldly possessions. She went on the run. She knew she was going to be incarcerated if she was captured alive. And I think her being a, a, a career corrections officer didn't want to face that. So uh, that's why I think it's very clear that this was a suicide. Um, it may have uh, happened after the pit maneuver was uh, was done and, and the, you know, the car went into the flip. She knew this is it. It's over and it's time to end it. And that's what she did. Uh, I don't think that, uh, you know, it would be hard for them to say, well, it was an accident and, you know, there's not going to be any criminal charges for anybody, but they, they're ruling it as a suicide because of the evidence that's uh, brought forth from autopsy and uh, all of the different indicators, as well as maybe uh, a visual. Someone could have saw that she put the gun to her head and fired the shot, but I don't think that that's really coming into play here. These conspiracy theories, we could put that to rest, I think. Rick Denton, hello from a retired police officer from Oklahoma. You guys are great. Thank you Thank so you, much. Rick. I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee. <laughs> <laughs> that's an old Merle Haggard tune. <laughs> 
But uh, thank you guys. Thank you guys in the chat for all your support. Uh, Janice Martin, she clearly was not thinking correctly. Barbara Ann, great show. Uh, Where's my comment? Texas prison escapee. I saw that up there that uh, a Texas prison escapee attacked a bus driver and was able to escape. I don't see it uh, in the rest of the chat, but I just repeated it. So if I see it again, I'll, I'll put it up there. Marlene, he didn't have nothing to lose. Uh, she would still have a little life after all. In a few years, that's why he sh uh, she shot herself, yes. Uh, so, guys, it's, you know, I want to play a little bit of, um, uh, they talk about inmate manipulation. And we didn't cover a great deal of this because it's neither Phil or I's expertise. But they had a, a CO expert on News Nation. And we're going to talk a little bit about this. I'll put it on the screen and play it for you guys. Shot herself, likely took the truth of what really went on between them to the grave. And while you don't hear much about these types of jailhouse relationships, it does not mean that they're not happening, romantic and otherwise. Anthony Ganji has seen it all, and he is the author of the book Correctional Manipulation. Anthony, uh, good to see you tonight. Thank you for being here. So inmate manipulation, there's even a term about some of the games that they play, and you call it downing a duck. What exactly does that mean? Well, downing a duck is really taking advantage of a staff member that may be a little bit too gullible or naive to um, the complexity of uh, inmate manipulation. So be advised when it comes to inmate manipulation, the game is very subtle. And if you go in 100% wanting to help the inmate without being defined by the prescribed roles of the agency, uh, the inmate is going to find a way to take advantage of that want to help. Well, answer me this. Why are some staff members willing to take that risk? Because I'm sure that they know going in that the risk is there, what's happening behind those walls. Um, what's the most common reason that they, they get involved with these inmates and help them? I think their loyalty shifts. I think the inmate uh, gets them to minimize the consequences by building the trust with them. I mean, most of the time, the external incentive not to do something is usually based on not getting caught, which isn't strong enough when uh, inmate is able to challenge that. You need the internal incentive that I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons, as opposed to I'm doing the right thing because I don't want to go to jail. If the inmate is able to minimize that external incentive, if they're able to build the trust and at the end of the day tell you, don't worry, I won't report it, well, now the external justification holds no weight. Now it's more about what your values are. And at that point, if you're basing it on external justifications, there are none. What are some of the ways that inmates use these relationships, build that trust to their advantage? What do they do? Well, it's usually slow and subtle. I mean, you're going to look for vulnerabilities. Uh, the first thing they're going to check out is uh, someone's disposition. One thing, you know, what, what is their defined purpose? Can I pull them out of the prescribed role? Can I isolate them? I mean, another thing they look at is the environment. And if you have an environment that isn't complacent, then, you know, inmates are going to say, well, this isn't going to be worth the effort. But if you have an environment that's lax and the uh, it kind of shows to be more of a resource, then the problem is you're not setting enough obstacles up to prevent the inmate from employing the game. And one last thing, too, the interaction with inmates have increased a lot more than ever done before. So with that said, with the increased level of interactions, uh, we have to be always uh, on point when it comes to um, where we're allowing that dialogue to go. If the inmate is able to connect with us on a personal level, it's easier for them to pull us out of our prescribed role because 
we no longer see them as an inmate because we ourselves no longer see ourselves as defined by the trusted role we're meant to serve. Hmm. Anthony, as we look at these pictures of, of Casey White and Vicki White, I'm guessing that you weren't surprised at all that this type of relationship was happening based on what you know. So um, if it's that widely known that it's taking place, what's being done to stop it? What are the checks and balances in security that, um, that need to be hmm. readdressed? Well, right off the bat, um, when you notice that you have a complacent culture, uh, especially like this with um, a young lady who's able to take an inmate out on her own, uh, that would be a PREA violation in itself. Um, the first thing you have to do is you have to look at the culture that permits that. So you have to look from the top down because the, the top is what's going to reinforce um, the culture that we need to make sure things like this don't happen. So technically, you have to really look at all the practices that were in play because complacency is a unique thing because what happens here just like manipulation, complacency is slow and subtle. You don't realize you're complacent until, bang, something like this happens. So when complacency starts becoming practice and now you have complacency breeding complacency, you wind up having a culture where this is a very forgiving facility. Wow. It's eye-opening and it's not rare. And the sheriff in that department there in um, Florence, South Carolina, or Florence, Alabama, excuse me, said the buck stops here. Um, I'm glad we're talking about it because it needs to be addressed. Anthony, I um, appreciate you coming on tonight. Thank you. You know, Phil, that, that's very interesting. One of my takeaways by from this is, of course, the leniency in regards to uh, prison inmates in a facility. Like they're allowed so much more freedom within that facility, I think, than ever before. And I remember years ago when I was on the job, I had to go to a parole hearing at Rikers. And I was horrified by what I saw. It was like an open mall with just perps walking around like they were in a shopping mall. And I was like, is this really happening? And I didn't feel very safe in there. At the time, I was a police officer walking around among all of these, potentially some of them could have known me, you know, walking around among all of these perps in this indoor Rikers Island shopping mall. That's what it reminded me of. I got to tell you, Billy, I've been inside jails on a couple of occasions. And one particular time uh, we were down in Ocean County, New Jersey. Uh, interviewing two perps on a murder and they wound up uh, confessing to the murder, but that's a story for another day. But the fact that when we got into the jail, the first thing they do is take your firearm away from you. You lock it away. Uh, then there's, I counted seven doors behind me locked closed with that big sl steel slamming gate with that baboon when it, when it locks. So uh, it's not a very secure feeling. And then, like you said, the inmates are out and about in the tears. They come into the areas the common areas where you're walking through and uh, they know who you are immediately, obviously. And it's not a very secure feeling, but uh, there was one thing that he didn't mention that I think we should make a point on. Now, when you have a correction officer that goes to work, a lot of times it's not just an eight hour shift. Sometimes somebody calls out sick. It could be 16 hours. So they're spending a lot of time with the inmates, but the minute that an inmate starts to ask you questions about your personal life. That's a red flag right there. Like maybe he asked her, oh, you know, uh, how's your love life or how's your husband or whatever it was. Those are the red flags that the correction officers have to put up the wall and say, whoa, it's not about my family or my personal life. 
you're here. I'm the correction officer. I'm in charge. So let's, you know, cut that kind of conversation out. But again, complacency does take place when you're around the person for hours and hours. And uh, that's probably what happened here where, uh, in the co- title of his book of Ganji's book, it says, uh, the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. Uh, he found the kink in the armor, uh, with, uh, with, uh, Vicky white, Casey white found the kink in the armor. He, you know, maybe he started out very, very subtle asking little questions. And before you know it, uh, this romance blossomed and in her, I guess, uh, very, very uh, uh, weak state of mind, went along with the plan. And uh, here we have it that now she's now dead and he's back behind bars. You know, Phil, conversely, he spoke about uh, being lax in a correctional facility and how inmates can smell weakness and they can uh, smell uh, a correction officer being lax, not following the protocols, not following the rules and procedures. And the same is true in police work. I know that many that have studied police work said uh, the officer most likely to be killed in the line of duty is a community policing type, not like a, a, a crime fighting warrior who is more always has. Uh, and I think Dr. Washkel told us this term hypervigilance is always hypervigilant. However, a community policing type officer who's friendly, wants to shake hands, kiss babies, say hello to the community, go to parties, bring kids to the Yankee games. Walk all uh, ladies across the street. Yeah, walk all ladies across the street, uh, smile for the community. That is the officer that is more likely to become the victim of a line of duty death. And I, I don't say that lightly because the people that are preaching this community policing smile and you know sing we are the world, we are the children, those are the people that don't really care about police officers. And understand hypervigilance and why hypervigilance is a necessity in police work to keep yourself alive. Listen, Billy, I think the uh, two officers that were killed in Upper Manhattan uh, just a couple of months ago, I think it was back in February, um, they probably uh, went in there with that community policing type of uh, attitude, you know, they, they weren't there to, uh, they were trying to settle a family dispute and unfortunately they both lost their lives. Now I'm not trying to knock them. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that, uh, there was any question that that guy was homicidal and he, you know, he basically executed them. But, uh, again, you're making a good point that the, Oh, the- Phil, I just got a comment on this real quick. Dennis Stoltz, how do they know that one of the cops didn't shoot her when they were shooting like hell at the car, it needs to be investigated. That's the, stupidest, that's the stupidest remark I've ever heard. There was one shot fired. So know your facts before you regurgitate some nonsense like that. Yeah, there, there were absolutely no shots fired by any of the law enforcement. There was one shot fired by the gun that uh, Vicki White had in her hand. And uh, I think that that's clear. Uh, you know, even if the shots were being fired by the law enforcement officers, they would be justified in that. There's no question that, uh, you know, they could, if they did fire shots, they would be able to come forth and say it. So that, that comment is just uh, 100% false. Yeah. I mean, you know, something, I, I don't know. Sometimes I feel that many people just come into the chat and they haven't listened before. They haven't listened to the numerous shows where we spoke about it in great detail how the autopsy proved scientifically that this was a suicide. And I think people just come in without having listened to that or having listened to anything and just 
just make a statement like that. It's just, it's, it's irresponsible, you know. Billy, under federal law, the marshals, you have a fleeing felon. They can shoot them, and they would be 100% justified. And so if that were the case, I'm sure they would have no problem, uh, you know, uh, admitting that or or bringing that, you know, stating that. So, again, like you said, there, uh, whoever it was that put that uh, comment in doesn't know the facts, didn't do any research, or doesn't know any of the uh, previously reported facts about this case. Truth teller, too, they said she was heard by dispatch that she had her finger on the trigger. Why haven't we heard that in the release 911 uh, call? I believe yeah. there is a, uh, a recording of that. I don't have it available. I don't have it queued up right now. But I believe there is a recording where she says she has the gun to her head. Uh, so it's not uh, it's not anything we didn't know. Um, did uh, I'm not going to, Janice Martin, you're bringing up a whole other topic. I'm not going to get into that right now. Uh, Lady is a tramp. She committed suicide. No need to waste tax dollars on feelings. Well, you know, it is a tragedy, but you know, when it's science proves that it, the investigation indicates a certain thing, we go with that. We have to go with the science. And uh, I don't know how many times I've said that in this broadcast. I want to play a little bit of uh, JB Buno with Brian Entenon, who actually is a one hell of a reporter. And with the, the, the type of shows that we do, He's all over it all the time, and uh, we appreciate his reporting. I'm just going to play a little bit of him on the screen. Really, with one quick, one quick point I want to make. Even though she probably, not probably, she committed suicide. Uh, she's a felon and all of that, but her family has the right to know what the circumstances of her death were. Everyone has that right, uh, whether good, bad, or indifferent. She's a felon, but uh, the, the family should not be lied to. And I think that all the facts are indicative of a suicide. So let's just put that to rest. Absolutely. I'm back here on the program. Brian, I know you're heading back right now into Alabama. A lot to discuss. Want to let everybody know wherever you're watching from, you can use either of the two hashtags on your screen. Hashtag Hey Brian, hashtag Hey JB. We're going to pluck some of the questions and comments out of the Facebook Live comment section, YouTube Live as well. We'll look on Twitter if we can and try to get some of those comments uh, and questions involved in the live stream. We want to hear from you and also answer any questions because this is a story that a lot of folks were following really into, you know, as far back as last week over the course of the weekend. Of course, this now culminating uh, with the capture of Casey White and the death by suicide uh, of Vicki White. Uh, Brian, just kind of update us with uh, what the latest is and what you're working on as we start to get into some of the questions from our audience members here. Yeah, so the latest is um, Casey White is now back in Alabama. Um, late last night, they brought him back. Uh, he was arraigned in Florence, Alabama at the Lauderdale County Courthouse. They had the judge come in. Um, it was at about 9... 50 central time i think is when it happened the judge came in just to do the arraignment they brought him in um to the courthouse did it and then they took him out um i'm sure you've seen the video by now i mean it was so interesting to see oh you're showing it right now i mean he's like this massive man and we we've been following him for the last um we're trying to follow him for the last 12 days and we kept hearing he's almost seven feet tall um, but when you, when you, when you see him like that, I mean, you realize that he, he just is so much even taller than all of the, the deputies. So this really big guy, um, they, they, um, they arraigned him and he was originally, we were told that he was going to go back to the County jail that he got out of, um, initially before being sent to a state prison, but they changed that plan, which is probably a good idea. And they took him straight to a maximum security uh, prison in Jefferson County, Alabama. I was actually just reading about this prison on our drive. It's like the place where the most dangerous 
of the dangerous go um, in Alabama. So it seems like he's in, in the place where, where he should be right now. Interesting to note some of the things that were found with them, Brian. Talking about about $20,000 in cash. We'll talk more about the cash and why there's only $20,000 in just a moment. But an AR-15 rifle, four semi-automatic handguns, and then wigs for disguises were uh, recovered as well. But this is uh, by, by what we're hearing from Casey White and his conversations reportedly to law enforcement. This was going to be a firefight. This was going to be um, a, a standoff that was going to ensue between Casey White, Vicki White, and law enforcement, had it not been for the heroic efforts uh, with a pit maneuver to end this police chase and bring this to an end. Um, what do we know about the heroic efforts of law enforcement here? Yeah, basically, um, the sheriff in, uh, in Indiana, in Evansville, says that Casey White told them after he was uh, brought in that he wanted this to end essentially suicide by cop. He wanted there to be, um, you know, a gunfight. Uh, luckily, that didn't happen. Uh, they had been doing surveillance. They were at this uh, this motel. We were actually there all last night at this this motel they were staying at. Um, it's actually right across the street from the sheriff's office, which is really interesting, uh, where they were hiding out at the motel. So they were doing surveillance on them at the motel, and um, they were trying to figure out where they're going to storm the room, how are they going to handle this, and that's when Vicky and Casey left. So they started following and pursuing them, did the pit maneuver, uh, and luckily, they ended this without anyone on the outside getting hurt. Of course, we know Vicki White um, committed suicide uh, before before the crash, but um, but it could have been much much more dangerous. And you mentioned everything they had in the car, all of that cash and the guns and the um, and even her taser, her taser that she had from working uh, at the sheriff's office in Alabama, they had with them. But we also learned late last night that they also had a lot of camping gear, which I thought was really interesting. And the sheriff um, in Indiana told us that uh, he thinks that they were leaving that hotel for good, that they were on to their next uh, spot to hide out. So it, it's certainly very good that they stopped them when they did, or they may have been you know, able to get away and, and continue the, you know, this, uh, this trip that they were on. For folks just joining us, you can use hashtag HJB, hashtag HeyBrian. We're about to get to some of your uh, questions and comments. Brian's on the road, so hopefully we uh, we have good sig uh, cell signal there uh, as he now gets back into the state of Alabama. Uh, we had talked about it on a previous stream that it was more, there were so many questions about whether or not the two were going to flee to Mexico or flee to Canada, trying to get out internationally. And I tried to tell folks that it's not just it's not that easy just crossing over the border and just making it to another country like that um but yes that apparently we are hearing reportedly that the plans were for them to hide out kind of lay low a little bit and wait for things to cool off as far as all of the law enforcement presence that were in these states uh, let me actually bring this up really quickly, folks. If you want to hear the full 911 call, you can click on the link in the description on this video. It'll take you over to WFLA.com, the WFLA app. And you can listen to the seven plus minutes of the 911 call that Vicki White made before the crash. We're going to play some of it here, but we're trying to get to as many questions as possible while we have Brian Enton. And while we have good cell signal with Brian Enton holding up extremely well, but Faye Hawkins saying hashtag KJB from the 911 call, uh, you could hear her telling him to stop and that they could run. Why did we not hear the gunshot fire off in that call is the question from Faye Hawkins. Yeah, that's a good question too. There's a lot of um, mystery around that 911 call. Like yeah. who actually dialed in? Was it the OnStar from the Cadillac they were in? We're still not really sure. 
um, because it's like weird. Like they're not actually talking to 911, but you can hear everything happening in the, in the car. Um, I'm not sure why we didn't hear the gunshot. I mean, it's certainly, it's really muffled in some parts. You hear a lot of weird noises. I think you hear like the airbags going off at one point. So it's possible like it was just in one of those muffled parts and we didn't hear it. Um, but yeah, I think the 911 call led to more questions than answers because it's it's just a weird call to listen to. Um, but you definitely, it was, for me, having covered this for 12 days, like it was like kind of just interesting to hear Vicky's voice. I had never heard her right. voice before. Um, and to hear her say, you know, I don't have the quotes right in front of me, but basically like we should have stayed at the hotel, get out and run. Um, again, what I was saying earlier, people saying she was actively very much, in, you know, a part of this. I mean, you can kind of hear that in the 911 call. We spotlighted one of your tweets, Brian, in our, in, I think, our very first live stream on this when you said the. Now we're realizing um, there were things they weren't that smart about. Like, why did they stay in Evansville for so long? Why did they get the motel right near the sheriff? So, you know, we're going over some of the things that we've always gone over before. I like uh, JB Buono and, of, of course, Brian Enton. Uh, they got some good insider information on this case. Uh, we've played the uh, the the tapes. There's all oh, those questions always. Why didn't we hear the gunshot? Well, how, who called nine one one? Did nine one one call her? Was it the OnStar from the vehicle? All of these things that investigation should reveal down the road. And if you want good and accurate investigation, it takes time. You don't always get the information as quickly as the public wants and as quickly as the press wants. However, they will get the accurate information. And it's still important even after the fact and even after Casey is back in prison, it's still important to get the accurate information out there. I'm sure that uh, the investigators know who called 911 at this point, whether it was the OnStar system that uh, normally when OnStar is engaged, it'll it'll uh, be someone from OnStar and ask if you need 911. And if they don't answer, they'll just contact 911 and connect it through. Could be that. Could be that they had a burner phone or a cell phone and, and uh, called 911 themselves, perhaps to maybe start a negotiation like back off, I'm going to kill myself, whatever it was. But I'm sure that the investigators will know. And again, as as time goes on, we'll probably get the information, whether or not he was shot from the bullet that she fired, whether or not she called 911, whether or not they had a burner phone, a cell phone. So all of those things will be coming out uh, as time goes forward. I'm sure of it. Mark D, why did they leave the pickup in the car wash halfway in? Another big mistake. They called attention to themselves. They interrupted the business of the car wash owner that brought attention to themselves. Well, Mark, you're right. I think their thought was that he could conceal himself inside the bay of that car wash so she could come there and pick him up and he'd have very little exposure between the bay of the car wash and getting in the car. I think that was their thought, and it turned out to uh, blow up in their face since the car wash manager, uh, who, who I love, incidentally, oh, yeah. brilliant guy. Uh, that's an American. That's an American citizen, and he even said it out there. If you see something, say something, and he did. He saw something and he said something, and that's the way we want the world to work. That's the way concerned citizens, good Americans, good people looking out for their fellow citizens. And uh, that's James, uh, his name, uh, James Stinson, yes. uh, the manager of, of that car wash. Brilliant. And I will play a little bit of him later on, but he that's that's what we want out there. You know, That's what the police want out there in the public. And I hope James Stinson gets that $25,000 reward because he certainly deserves it.
Absolutely, Billy. And uh, really, when you think about it, he's the reason that this thing came to a conclusion. Uh, his information, he had the video uh, surveillance of the Cadillac, so they knew what they were looking at. Uh, when they put it out to local law enforcement, the detective that went and checked the hotel spotted the vehicle, and then we know what else played out after that. So see something, say something. Uh, a concerned citizen, obviously, his uh, input into this case was very, very important to, uh, for, for the whole thing coming to a conclusion. So again, you have uh, kudos to him and uh, he's a good, uh, a good citizen. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I wanted to say and, and to make it clear to everyone out there is that every profession makes mistakes in their job. Every single profession, whether it's doctors, lawyers, cooks, uh, pathologists, car salesmen, politicians. My wife even oh. occasionally burns the sauce, Billy. You're right. That's right. Every once in a while she burns that spaghetti sauce and I know you go crazy, but I just want to sort of un dentist, Mark D said dentist. Yeah. But you know something that's human nature. People make mistakes. And when in a high profile case like this, of course it's highlighted. And I even some saw some reporters. One of them was on news nation. I don't know, uh, remember the guy's name. He's sort of new. He was really coming down hard on law enforcement. And I took sort of umbrage at that. And I understand that we even pointed out some of the mistakes of, that were made. But, you know, they make mistakes every day. They're human. And, you know, it's highlighted because, you know, you don't see a dentist, the uh, uh, 10 news stations watching him uh, fill a tooth or pull a tooth or uh, clean teeth. You don't see there's no coverage on that. You don't see for the most part inside a an operating room, a doctor have 10 cameras on him questioning what he's doing when he loses a patient. So, but law enforcement, they got a damn body one camera, right? Uh, on the left side of their uh, chest, they have cameras watching what they do inside the vehicle. So there's been no other profession that has that level of accountability. So again, yes, they do make mistakes, but we have to realize that and realize that Law I wonder how this news reporter, if he's ever had a gun pointed at his head or been shot at. And then maybe I'd respect him a little more for his opinion. You know, Billy, the uh, scrutiny that's put upon law enforcement over the years is uh, really, really, like you said, it's to an excess. And the thing is that, um, you know, there's been so many different cases where uh, they claim that people's rights are violated or uh, an officer might act incorrectly and someone loses their life. So, again, if you're doing your job cor correctly and if you are a professional and the professionalism goes to each individual, it, it, you know, uh, just because you're sworn in as a police officer and you're, you're uh, trained as a professional doesn't mean you're going to carry out your professionalism throughout your whole career. And again, you know, sometimes you can look at an officer and see sometimes whether or not his uniform is unkept or whatever. Uh, what degree of professionalism that officer is going to maintain. But uh, the scrutiny that's put upon law enforcement, maybe it's warranted, maybe some of it isn't. But uh, again, uh, I think if you're taking your job seriously and if you are going to uh, you know, be a professional, that uh, you could have all the cameras you want. If you do the job the right way, it's not going to matter. Everything's going to fall into your favor. Okie dokie seven. I'm glad you asked this question. It's a, it's a good one. Right. Everyone makes mistakes. With that said, how do things change? Pointing out the mistakes and educating how to keep them from happening, I would assume. Okie dokie. Great comment. Great question. And you know something? I said that when I would have, not just me, 
members of the Homicide Squad or uh, the Detective Bureau, when we had a major investigation, it was completed, in essence, that we made the arrest and the case was closed. That didn't mean the work stopped. We would critique our own work and see things that we did correctly and things we did incorrectly, and with the hope that in the future we would learn from our mistakes and move on. That's all you can do. Training, of course, is important. Uh, you know, you always hear politicians when the cops make a mistake say they need more training. Guess what? That politician doesn't mean that because training takes cops off the road and it costs lots of money. So politicians, they can raise their finger and talk shit, but they really don't mean it. They need more training. That's really the truth is politicians need more training. Yeah, every politician should do a ride-along on a 4 to 12 in a busy precinct. And then maybe you can have some comment on, you know, the ins and outs of what law enforcement officers do or don't do or they should be doing. Because when you're faced with the adversity of the real-life situations that law enforcement officers go through every day, and whether it be from a simple shoplifting or taking a report on domestic violence from a woman who got a ketchup bottle slammed over her head or uh, engaging someone in a gun battle, you know, there's a lot of things that happen in the course of a tour of duty for most police officers. Sometimes they can go very simple and easy and there's not a lot of stuff going on. And if you go to a busy precinct in Brooklyn or in Upper Manhattan or any of the high crime areas, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, uh, California, uh, LA, go to uh, do a ride along and then tell me, what you think about law enforcement officers and the work that they do. That's when you can really say you've been there and you've done it. You've experienced it. It's not an easy profession. It's not an easy job. It definitely takes its toll. Not trying to uh, look for favor. Uh, we did it. Billy and I did it. We have almost 50 years of law enforcement experience. I wouldn't do anything different uh, if my life was played over again, but uh it's easy for someone to sit behind a desk in Washington and say, oh, the cops should have did this, or wh whether it be local or national uh, political office. Go uh, do a ride along, then you can talk. Bill, you know what? You want to get politicians to understand law enforcement more, take their armed security away from them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that <laughs> let, them, let, them, let them walk around unarmed without security. Let them be on their own. You'll see their whole act change. Absolutely. I want to play a little bit of Brian Enton. This was early on in the investigation, and I think he did a fantastic job. And this is where the uh, James Stinson comes in, the manager of that call. Uh, in Tennessee, we were trying to find uh, the people who discovered um, Vicky and Casey White's getaway car there, the SUV that they started this whole saga with almost two weeks ago. When we got the tip that there was something brewing in, um, in Evansville, Indiana, which is about two and a half hours from where we were in Tennessee. It was believed that Casey and Vicky were spotted here. And then we found out they indeed were at this car wash behind me. They were spotted on surveillance uh, camera by the manager here, who's really the reason this entire thing ended today. And then with the police chase uh, and, and Vicky and Casey White uh, now apprehended. I want to bring in uh, the manager of, of, um, of this car wash, uh, James Stinson. Thanks for being with us, yeah, James. You really are the reason all this came to an end. And this has just been a wild week and a half. Um, tell me what you first spotted here at the car wash. Yeah, first notice on Tuesday, last right, Tuesday, a truck sticking out of the car wash van. It's always unusual when one's sticking out. So I come over and looked at it, and I left. So, and this is about four in the afternoon on Thursday, 4, 4.30. 
So I left. Every time I'd leave and come back to the truck store. I leave and come back to the truck store. Leave and come even up late at night, the truck's still there. I go in, go to bed. I get up at six o'clock the next morning to take my granddaughter to school. The truck's still there. So I think I need to investigate. Once I get her to school, she gets out of my truck around 7.30. I'm gonna come back and check it out. I come back, I walk up to the truck. I notice the windows are down. And my first thought is could be this guy from Alabama. He might be in there asleep, passed out, suicide whatever i'm kind of nervous about it so i looked over in the truck nobody's in it i opened the door the keys are in the ignition which i thought was unusual i tried to start the truck the truck started right up so i know there was nothing wrong with the vehicle so i left i come back out i got on my phone i googled the local police department's phone number because i didn't want to call 911 so i called them i said you need to send an officer out i got a suspicious vehicle in the car we'll have one right out I go back to the back, I'm done with my trash, he never shows up. I gotta go back and pick my daughter up, granddaughter up at 10 30. I get her home, I come back, and my buddy's here and said they ain't never showed up. I called him out, I said, uh, police officer never showed up. I said, Yeah, they, they either had he pulled up and he run the plate, it ain't stolen. So it wasn't stolen. That's what he That's interesting, because that's new. We didn't know that. So maybe they bought it. Perhaps they bought it. No, no, no. Uh, it could be that. But I, I had him get out and he looked inside the car and he said, oh my God, there's a gun lock. There might be a gun in there. No, there ain't no gun. He done the same thing. He stuck his key in it and it started. So he said, I can't help you. It's not reported stolen. So all I, I said, I know what to do. I call Tri-State and I have to I can't have it here. So I called Tri-State. They come after Yesterday at 8 o'clock in the evening, the... U.S. Marshal called me from Alabama. And they asked me, said, did you have a car towed from your car wash? I said, yes, I did. And I said, it's got to do with that guy from Alabama. And he said, yeah, we're pretty sure it is. And I said, where, he said, where do you have a tow to? I said, he said, Christ's sake. And he said, he said it was reported stolen. And you, you spoke. And, and what I said, and I told him, I said, that, that police officer told me it wasn't reported stolen. I said, what I'm thinking. They stumbled up on the car with the keys in it, so they just stopped out and took it. And they probably don't even know what's going yet. And that U.S. Marshal said, you're exactly right. That's exactly what happened. And you went back and looked at the surveillance video. You saw Casey and Vicky. You showed me the video earlier of Casey White by the truck in the vehicle bay. Uh, but you apparently, do you also have video of Vicky? I've got video of a woman in a car, a short woman. You can't make out who it is, but you, she stopped right out here and picked him up. He walked out of that bay right after a car. How does it feel to know that you're the one who brought an end to all of this? I don't know if I'm the one that brought the end to that. I'm not. I'm glad it's over and nobody got hurt. That's what I'm thinking. Well, thank you, James. Thank you again. Thanks for it's your good time. to talk with you. Yeah. Uh, you heard from James uh, Bay basically spotted the truck, went back and looked at the surveillance video, uh, realized that it was Casey and Vicki White, called U.S. Marshals, and that is how this whole thing got started here uh, in Evansville, Indiana. We've confirmed uh, with authorities uh, that they've now been apprehended. Uh, Casey White is in good condition. He will eventually be extradited back to Alabama on charges. Vicki White uh, is suffering from a self-inflicted gunshot so there you have it uh, that guy that guy was great james stinson and i hope he gets the reward for uh 
you know, for what he saw being a great witness, you know, because, I, you know, I, I, th- I don't think the local sheriff is giving him the credit for doing what he did. He's sort of saying, oh, no, this officer spotted the vehicle in the hotel parking lot. That was after it was identified by James Stinson as uh, the, one of the cars she came and picked him up in. Phil, let's go to a quick break and we'll be right back with this. Sure. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Looking for a vacation oasis? The Comfort in Ocean, Oceanside in sunny Deerfield Beach, Florida has you covered. Take a dip in the outdoor heated pool with a water slide for the kids. Have a cocktail poolside or relax in the Oasis Courtyard Lounge. Just a short walk to the best restaurants in the Deerfield Beach International Fishing Pier. Soak up the sun, swim in the pristine blue ocean, or stroll along the famous beach. Maybe enjoy a sunset from a beachside restaurant. Guests will enjoy a complimentary breakfast and fresh brewed coffee 24-7. If you mention police off the cuff at booking, you'll receive a 20% discount. That's right, 20%. So book your stay today by calling 954-428-0650. John Beatty Law, www.jbeattylaw.com. John Beatty is a renowned personal injury attorney. He's also retired as a decorated NYPD sergeant. John comes from a proud NYPD and FDNY family. He was an active sergeant in Brooklyn North and supervised in the legal bureau. John is a proud member of the Honor Legion and the Blue Knights. John Beatty litigates across the country for seriously injured victims and has helped recover over $200 million for grieving families. Call John now for a free consultation. John Beatty, 917-797-9520. That's John Beatty Law, www.jbeattylaw.com. So, Phil, you know, it's like uh, everyone, of course, is happy that uh, Casey White is back in Alabama. And instead of putting him in this this jail where he was able to escape from, he's now in a state prison where he belongs. An inmate, a high, uh, a high escape risk inmate like this guy should only be in a state prison, should not ever be in a jail. And, you know, the thing is, we could just look at that screen. There's that beautiful picture on that screen, apprehended. And they were out there for 11 days endangering society. But now he is where he belongs to be. And we sympathize with the family of um, Vicki White. But uh, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes as they stay in the law enforcement business. I like that one. That's a good one. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the interview with the owner of the car wash there, he said that the marshals told him they believed it was uh, Vicki White and Casey White that were with that vehicle. They were probably right hot on the trail. Somehow or another, they might, must have linked that pick, particular pickup truck to uh, Casey White and Vicki White. So they were right there. But his input by calling and staying on top of it, even after they took the car away, uh, he managed to uh, recover that video and uh, that really left led to those words apprehended on the screen that we just saw. So uh, he gets the big kudos and definitely deserves the uh, reward money. And uh, there's nothing like seeing something and saying something and helping law enforcement to uh, bring people to justice. 
You know, absolutely. And I, I always go back to this picture to show everyone the danger that law enforcement was in, the danger that the public was in by these two that just wanted to get away. And, you know, I don't know what was in their head to think that they were going to live happily ever after or that they were going to get away. There was no mastermind in this uh, escape. It was actually pretty simple, the escape. But there absolutely was no mastermind that uh, devised this brilliant escape uh, scheme. She had keys. She let him out, and they, they took off. That's it. There was no brilliance involved in this. However, when the media just likes to twist things to, to you know, elevate the, this story, that's what they do. And, you know, as a result, well, that's why we're reporting on it, because this became not just a national story, but an international story. Uh, and, you know, it's over now. And he's back where he belongs in prison. And we'll follow the case along. Uh, you know, he's already sentenced to 75 years. Now, if he goes on trial for this murder, you know, what are they going to give him, 150 years? I mean, hello, most people don't live the life expectancy in this country is about 80. And if you're a prison inmate, I'm sure it's not even that long. But, uh, you know, he's never going to get out of prison. And he shouldn't. He uh, should never see the light of day. He's 38 years old. Uh, 75 years on top of the 38, obviously due to numbers, that's well over a hundred and, uh, it's not going to happen, but he still needs to be brought to justice for this other homicide that they're looking at him for, which he confessed to. There's also the shooting from 2008 where his girlfriend allegedly committed suicide. They're looking at him for the homicide on that. And then all the charges from this escape, uh, you know, his reckless behavior obviously led to the uh, suicide of Vicky. So uh, he needs to be brought to justice for that. And, uh, you know, if at the end of the day, his uh, sentence is going to be 200 years or more, then it is what it is. Uh, he'll never see the light of day and that's where he belongs. So uh, they have it. And like Bill said, we're going to keep a, an eye on this case. We'll keep our uh, ears to it. And if something should come about, we'll definitely report on it. Let me just play a little bit of this with Ashley Banfield, the Love mindset. The mindset uh, but of there are two men who know all too well just how tough this business is because it's what they do for a living. Joel Lambert is a former Navy SEAL and the star of the Discovery Channel series Manhunt. And Callahan Walsh is the co-host of the Investigation Discovery series In Pursuit with John Walsh. Gentlemen, thank you both uh, for, for being with me tonight. Joel, I want to begin with you. Six days. This fugitive pair stayed in one spot, Evansville, for six days. Was that mistake number one and why on earth do you think they did it? Well, I don't know if it was mistake number one, Ashley, but it certainly was a mistake. Uh, going to ground, which is, you know, settling down and stopping and staying in one place for a while is an effective technique and it can be used on occasion strategically. Going to ground that long and staying in one place that long, uh, I would say that's a mistake even before the result that it, uh, it that happened. Yeah, well, I will they say this, and, and Callahan, I'll bet you'll have a lot to say about this. Uh, when you try to catch bad guys like you and your dad have been doing for decades, uh, it's not normal that they're just out and about going back and forth between a car wash, between two cars. I mean, I would imagine they'd stay in that hotel room and order in, but I can't imagine they would be out and around to be spotted by one James Stinson who called them in. Yeah, we, we call it hiding in plain sight. But in this case, with such a close time period from when the... I, I would love to know what Callahan Walsh's experience is and actually out in the field going uh, after fugitives. He's a TV uh, cartoon character and he, he's believing that he is responsible for, uh, you know, 
for chasing down fugitives. Escape happened. They had to have known that their images were all over the media on every TV, every cell phone. And so it's very surprising to me that they were out and about. I would have thought they would have been hunkered down in a safe house somewhere, really trying to keep a low profile until, until it all blew over. But uh, thank goodness they were that dumb to uh, to be walking around and, and kind of living life as, as if no one was looking for them. Uh, here they're yeah. washing their car. They're, they're getting groceries and all, all this sort of stuff. You know, thank goodness that uh, the vigilant uh, public were able to spot them and call it in and take these people down. I think everybody can sleep safer tonight knowing that this guy, this convicted murderer, is now back behind bars. 100 percent, especially the people in Evansville who now know that for six days, uh, this very dangerous felon murderer uh, killer uh, has been a, he was a confessed murderer um, and an attempted murderer, convicted attempted murderer. But Joel, help me understand the mindset of the last throes of the pursuit. Uh, you've got a number of police on your tail. Uh, you got nowhere to go. You're in a high speed <clears throat> chase going across lawns through businesses. What's going through the mind of that fugitive when he knows it's almost over? Well, you just laid it right out, Ashley. The stress that someone in this situation is under, I can't even begin to describe that to you. When I was doing this television show, uh, the stress I was under, uh, under pursuit uh, by some of the world's best uh, um, tracking forces was enormous and my adrenal glands would be just shot after i'd finish a hunt the stress is incredible and these guys they were doing it for real this was this was not a game this was not a television show and so the stress that they were under that's when they make mistakes that's when they start having second thoughts that's when they start uh, really realizing and and facing the the enormity of of what they've done and what they're doing and that's i think what ended up making them make these mistakes and having it end up the way mm -hmm. it ended up. So Callahan, you know, it's no secret. Uh, your dad had America's Most Wanted for decades and put uh, well over a thousand uh, bad guys away, fugitives. Sometimes in the old days, it took years and years before they'd find these fugitives. Nowadays, there's surveillance video everywhere. Cable news channels are trumpeting these people who are on the run. And here we have two of these uh, fugitives caught in 11 days. Talk to me about that time frame and the shrinking notion of how hard it is to be on the run now. It really is. It's tougher and tougher to stay on the run these days. Technology makes it much more difficult, you know, with cell phone tracking, GPS and, and the modern media, uh, social media, the 24 hour news cycle plasters the image. And that's what we do on In Pursuit. We make the world a lot smaller place. These individuals shine a white hot spotlight on them. In fact, we've helped helped capture over 35 fugitives in just 36 episodes on In Pursuit. It works. When you put this image out there, when you put eyeballs on these people and, and, and use the public as a force multiplier, that's how we're able to catch these guys that stay on the run longer than you know just a few days like we have in this case. Well, God bless what you do. Uh, Callahan Walsh, thank you. And Joel Lambert, I love seeing you as well. Thank you for coming back to the program, both of you. Nice to be back. So there you go. I think that's uh, about all we'll have today. Uh, we covered a lot of different aspects of this case today. But if any other smoking gun type stuff comes up with this case, anything with the uh, upcoming trial, any more of the investigation comes out, we'll come back on with this uh, with this information. 
Yeah, Billy, I think the only real new thing, the fact that we uh, we picked up on uh, the video camera, the dash cam, when Casey was put over the hood of the car, you can hear the video of him saying, am I shot in the back of the head? And the uh, sergeant uh, says, yeah, I think you are. And he calls the medic. So it looks like the bullet may have traveled through uh, Vicky White's head and, and clipped him in the back of the head. Uh, we may get confirmation on that from law enforcement sometime soon, but that's the only really new thing that was, uh, I think that was reported here. And, uh, you know, listen, this was just such a, a gripping case that it held the attention of the nation and internationally as, as, as well, because they were on the run. She, he was walked out of the prison by a corrections officer. It seems completely uh, just unfathomable that a correction officer, a lifelong correction officer, a career correction officer, uh, voted uh, correction officer of the year four or five times would do such a thing. But I guess that's why it was such a uh, interesting case. But it did come to an end. And, uh, you know, let's uh, let's offer condolences to her family, her friends that uh, she lost her life over it. And uh, Casey will be back in jail and uh, things will move on. Absolutely. Folks, thank you so much for listening today. We're Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. Have a great day and stay safe. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.